Well, I want to encourage you to take your Bible, and we're going to go back to the New Testament again, and we're going to look at the third chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And for the last month, we've just been working through a a topical series on giving, and today I want to conclude that series by addressing rewards or treasures. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul the author here writing to the church of Corinth. And uh, even though I'm going to be zeroing in on verses like 10 through 15, I want to read verses 1 through 15 so you can kind of understand the flow of thought through this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says... I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Once again, I I find myself preaching to people that I love and care for in full awareness of something called the judgment seat of God. That if you are a child of God, that there will come a day where you will give an account of what you've done with Jesus and the blessings that he has given to you. And this passage speaks more specifically about that. So would you join me and let's pray for God to give us some thoughts about that day so that we can be prepared for it. Our Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we are so thankful for your word You have given to us these words of life. Where else should we go but 
to your written word. And thank you for Jesus being the word embodied in flesh. And as we look at this passage, we are reminded that there will be a future day in which we will stand before you giving an account of what we have done with Jesus, what we have done with the blessings that you have given to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this passage today to prepare us for that day and that these, these words would not just fall to the ground, but they would fall on ready lives, eager to hear and eager to prepare themselves for this, this day ahead of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years that I was in college, certainly there were professors that seemed to delight in tricking us students with tests. There might have been quizzes, exams, or tests of which these professors would just draw from the the minor minutiae of a chapter or an obscure part of their lecture where they just wanted to know if we were reading or if we were paying attention to their lectures. But I will tell you my favorite professors, and I had a few of them, were the ones that says, you know, it's not really all that important as I'm concerned about how you do on tests. I just want you to understand this material. I can think of a few occasions where there would be a professor in front of the class and he'd say, I have the test right here in front of me. And what I would like to do is just tell you what's on that test. And so if I was in World War II, he might say, you know, I'm I'm looking at this test right now, and you're going to really want to be studying the specifics of D-Day. You Remember when I gave you that lecture on Normandy? You're going to want to know that very well, because that's on the test. Or when I was in child psychology, my professor might have said, I'm looking at the test right now, and you're going to really need to study and reproduce the developmental stages of a child. Or when I was in seminary, my New Testament professor might have said, I'm, I'm looking at the exam right now, and there's a lot here on comparing and contrasting the four Gospels. So you want to make sure you master that in preparation for the test the next time we gather. You'll understand why they were my favorite professors. And what we have before us today is a pretest. It's a way of the Word of God informing us that there is a test that is coming, and in His kindness, He is helping us to know what is on that test. So you see, everyone in this room will one day have to give an account of what did they do with Jesus. If you were here on Friday late morning, we had this marvelous funeral service for one of our family members, Dave Koff. The way I say it was marvelous is because he literally had written out all the details of his funeral. It's the first time in all the years that I've served in ministry while I read someone else's sermon, and it was Dave's sermon that he had written out for his family to hear. And in that sermon, he spoke about how he had grown up in a religious family, and how we had understood that Jesus had died on the cross, that he had made a way to heaven. But for the first 64 years of Dave's life, he understood that it was up to him to live a good enough life to earn heaven. 
And then as he opened up the scriptures, and as he stood underneath the preaching of the gospel, he understood that that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was not just a a detached historical event, but it was a gift that was made available for him to have his sins forgiven. And that grace was extended to him that Jesus could literally be his Savior and his King. And he spoke about how he entered into a relationship with Jesus. But even Dave, and if you've done that yourself today, there is a, another test that awaits us. Now, it is not a test to determine whether you're going to heaven or not. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that has been determined. It is not a test to determine if you will be punished for your sins or not, because Jesus has taken your punishment upon himself. Rather, the Bible speaks about this judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or bad. And that's what this passage right here is speaking about. Now, the first several verses of chapter 3 speaks about the church of Corinth is going through some conflict. There are some that are loyal to a man named Apollos, a believer, a leader within the church, and others that are loyal to the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul. And Paul is saying, who's Apollos and and who's me? Who cares about me? All that really matters is, is Christ. Apollos, he was a part of that planting process. I planted Apollos water, but it was, it was God who brought the growth. And so he uses this metaphor of agriculture, and then he switches metaphors at the last part of verse 9 and begins to talk about a building. And this building and this metaphor leads us into thinking about this second test that all Christians will experience. When Jesus returns, what is it we did with Christ? What is it we did with the blessings that he has given to us? So I think this passage of Scripture addresses three different questions. And if you have an outline or if you're taking an outline, here's the first question. What is the foundation of your life? What is the foundation of your life? What are you building your life on? In verse 10 it says, According to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder. This word master builder in the Greek is referring to not only the designer, but also the one who carries out those designs. It says, I've laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. I came and I planted this church by preaching the gospel. Apollos has followed up. He's been discipling you. And then it says, the last part of verse 10, let each one take care of how he builds upon it. I think those are words for us today. Let each of us consider 
what we are building upon a foundation. The word take care here in Greek means to discern, to look at carefully on what we are building upon. If you've ever had a house built, I haven't, but I presume that what it does is it requires a lot of time and details to sit down with an architect, to look out every nook and cranny of that house, to consider how it is positioned for the sunlight, to consider how the doors are going to open into the hallway, to consider the layout of the kitchen. You just don't enter into building right away, but you must give thought. As the word says here, take care how he builds upon it. And verse 11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. What is the foundation of your life? If you are a Christian, then the foundation is to be Christ. It is Jesus. We see this repeated in the early part of this letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul wrote, For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Listen to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here's the first question. What are you building your life on today? What is the foundation of your life? And what does it mean to have Jesus as the foundation of your life? Well, let me give you a few thoughts to that. It means, one, that Jesus is my source of truth, who has the ultimate authority in your life. It is Jesus. It is His Word. Where did you come from? It is Jesus who created and brought this world into existence. Why am I here? You are here to know God, to to glorify Him. Just a couple of days ago, uh, Roman and I had a chance to to go to St. Paul for a pastor's conference. And I said, on our way back, is it okay if I I show you the college campus of which I, I grew up on? And we did a quick little zigzag through that college campus, and I pulled up to Milne's 117. That doesn't mean anything to you, but that was the dorm room in which I got down off my bunk bed. And I went down to the floor in the middle of the night and I said, God, if you're real, show yourself to me. I I will follow you. Reveal yourself to me. It's a very wonderful place for me. I said, Roman, right there on the other side of that window is where that prayer took place. If Jesus is our source of truth, then what is my greatest problem? It's our sin. What did Jesus do to resolve my problem? He went to the cross for me. And where do I go when I die? We find out that Jesus has prepared a place for us. To have Jesus as the foundation of your life means that Jesus is the source of truth. It also means that Jesus is the source of life. When we read in the Gospels about Jesus, we see that He is Lord of disease. He is Lord of demons. And He is Lord even of death. He came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and He is the way. 
And he died for our sins that we might experience forgiveness of sins and have eternal life. He's not only the source of truth, he's not only the source of life, but he's also the source of strength. He not only saves us from our sins, but then he strengthens us to obey him. We read in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Or Paul in Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then finally, Jesus is also our source of hope. We just sang this, and I think Sadie just read this verse a little while ago, that Jesus in John 14, verse 3, will go away, but he will come back, and he will bring us to himself. And as we look around this crooked world with laws that are contrary to the Scriptures and, and politicians that are, that are so twisted, and leading, and, and, and lawmakers, and judges that are acting out contrary to truth. We have this hope that one day this will all be made right when Jesus returns. So here's that first question. As you get ready for your test, what is the foundation? What are you building your life on? That leads me to the second question that I think this passage answers. And that is, what are you building your life with? Do you see what it says there in verse 12? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. You see, there are six different items that you can build with. And they're, they're like clustered. There are three that will withhold the flames of fire. And then there are three that will quickly be burned up. Imagine you are a master builder. Imagine for a living it is your responsibility to design and to build homes. And there is a very wealthy person that comes to you from out of state and says, I'd like to purchase a few acres that would overlook the bay. And I wonder if you would design and then build that house for me. And you say, well, that's kind of what I do. That's Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And so you design it. You build it. And because this person lives out of state, he really doesn't know what you're doing. He is just entrusting you with this. And you announce to him that now the house is finally finished. And the owner of that house drives down the driveway and he sees the house and he sees that you bought, built a log cabin home. And as you approach this person, you're excited to show him the house and he says, why did you build a log cabin? I said, well, I designed it, I built it. And the owner says, I told you not to build it with logs, but to build it with bricks. Would you agree with me that you have a problem on your hands? You've built it with the wrong materials. You didn't build it for yourself. You built it for someone else. As we're considering what are you building your life with, here are three different questions that we can ask ourselves. The first is this. 
what we do. Consider what we do. As we mentioned a little while ago, there will come a time where the judgment seat of Christ will take place and we will receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or bad. Ephesians 6, 8 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So what is it you do? You can live for yourself, or you can live for God and live for others. If you live for yourself, that is what's made up of wood, hay, and straw. So if you would like, feel free to to worship sports, to worship entertainment, to get caught up in materialism and temporal fads and, and chase after every one of the latest gadgets. But just know this, in the end, it will not last. I was reading uh, not all that long ago, I was actually listening to a book, and it was referencing John Wesley. We've been working through a, a series on giving, so I want to angle this now towards the topic of giving. John Wesley had just finished buying some pictures for his room when he moved into Oxford College when one of the chambermaids came to his door. It was a winter day, and he noticed that she had only a thin linen gown to wear for protection against the cold. He reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat and found he had little left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. He asked himself, Will thy master say, Well done and good and faithful servant? Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Perhaps as a result of this incident, in 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so would he have more money to give to the poor? His rec- records that one year of income was 30 pounds. And his living expenses were 28 pounds. So he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled. But he still lived on 28 pounds and gave 32 pounds away. And the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28 pounds, giving 62 pounds away. The fourth year he made 120 pounds, lived again on 28, and gave 92 to the poor. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, not the standard of living. He began this practice at Oxford, and he continued it throughout his whole life. And even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave his surplus money away. One year his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, and he gave away all but 30 pounds. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth, so the money went into charity as quickly as it came in. He reports that he never had as much as 100 pounds at one time. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins to be found in the pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime he had given away. As Wesley said, I cannot help 
leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me hence. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. Now, I'm not sure if we all need to go to that standard, but there is a certain principle there. In fact, Randy Alcorn has taken that kind of story and he's built something called the treasure principle of identifying how much we can live on comfortably and then giving away what is above that. And I think beginning this Wednesday, we'll have that four-week class beginning here at church at at 6 o'clock. So you could consider learning more about that principle. So you see that one thing is what we do. What are you building your life on? Ask yourself what we do. The second thing, the second question we can ask ourselves under the what are we building on is why we do it. It's not just the deeds and the words that come out of our mouth but it goes to the motives as to why we are doing them. Is it under obligation? Is it under guilt? Is it to be seen? Or is it out of obedience to the word of God? And could I pose a question before you? Is it okay for us to be motivated by heavenly treasures? Keep your finger here for a moment and look with me at the Gospel of Luke. Look at Luke chapter 6. Listen and read with me what it says here in verse 35. Jesus is speaking about loving your enemies. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And listen, and your reward will be great. For you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you see it there? That one of the reasons that we are to love our enemies is that our reward will be great. Look at another place in Luke, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And here's a passage in which many of the people of that day had no problem extending hospitality to people that were in the same socioeconomic class. Hey, we'll have them over this week, and if we treat them really well, maybe they'll have us over next week, and they'll treat us equally well. But Jesus said, when you have someone over, look at Luke 14, verses 13 and 14, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And you remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and he said that he was good and, and Jesus would eventually send him away. He said in Matthew 19 verse 21, if you would be perfect, Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. So it's not only what we do, but why we do it. And I'm suggesting to you that one of the motives that we can have is for eternal rewards. It's no different than Moses. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, it says of Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What was it that motivated Moses to be faithful? Is that there was a reward that awaited him. The writer here of 1 Corinthians, Paul would say a little bit later in chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I'm, I'm pressing towards a goal, Paul is saying. And Jesus himself, according to the book of Hebrews, says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, even Jesus was motivated for joy, and he endured the cross. So as we're considering what materials are you building with, are you building with just selfish materials, or are you building with a, with a material focused on God and serving others? It's not only what you do, but why you do it, and then finally, how we do it. This is an amazing thought to me, that it is possible to preach a passionate sermon, offer a sound Sunday school lesson, sing a magnificent special song, conduct a a church business meeting, go on a mission trip, go to the women's crafts night, go to a women's retreat, men's retreat, or a, a marriage retreat. It is possible to lead and and have people go out with you on a outreach event, and you can do all those things in your own strength, in your own efforts. And it's like wood, hay, and straw. So it's not only what you do, it's why you do it and how you do it. Is it by faith? Is it in the power of the Spirit? Is it led by prayer? Are you being guided by the Scriptures? Are you dependent on God to carry that out? This is what it looks like to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. So here's the answers. What kind of foundation are you building? What sort of materials? It's not just what you do. It's why you do it and how you do it. Those are the materials that matter. And then that leads to the third and final question I think this passage addresses. And that is, how much of the building materials of your life will pass the test. Look what it says in verses 13, 14, and 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, 
And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built in the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I got a hunch, I'm not alone in this, that when it comes to this judgment day, there's going to be a lot of surprises. There's going to be a lot of people that if that have been blessed with a lot of possessions and a lot of talents and a lot of gifts, I think they could be disappointed at how that test goes. Conversely, there's going to be people that routinely get overlooked. Do you remember the woman, the widow, in Luke chapter 21? It says, Jesus looked and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. He was actually praising this widow who had two little coins, And then there was a wealthy that was clanging this box so that everyone would know that they were giving a lot. He identified her. He was observing what she put in the offering box that day. There's a legend. This is not in the Scriptures. There's a legend that goes where this woman that that lived in this great, vast mansion, she had many different servants. She was a believer. And one day she went from this world to the next And as she was taken down the street, her guide showed her, now this is your new heavenly home, this is where you will be residing. And she thought to herself, well, this is lovely, this this will work just fine. But she couldn't help but notice that right next to that home was a, a massive mansion. And she said, well, this is nice, but I'm just curious, whose home is that? And the guide said, well, that's your gardener, that's your gardener's home. Well, how could it be that I have this home and, and that gardener has that home? And, and the guide said, well, all we did is we took the materials that you sent forward and we built with that. And we also took the materials that your gardener with their life had did and, and sent those forward in the way they lived their life, what they did, why they did it, and how they did it. And, and this is the materials that were left for that. Now, once again, that's not in the Scriptures, but it's just a legend. So how much of the building materials of your life will pass the test? You see, there's two different things that take place. For some, they're burned. Will these materials be burned up? Look what it says in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. This is a person that has lived for themselves, lived just for the moment. They might have had a lot of fun. They might have had a lot of things here, but it was all burnt up when they met Jesus. And then there's a second thing that we see in this passage, and that is, will you receive a reward? Look what it says there in verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
Now, there is a debate in the church, and it's among some very conservative Bible teachers and pastors, and they differ on this. There are some that say the greatest treasure in heaven is Jesus himself, and that is who we are to pursue, and no one would disagree with that. But the people on this side would say there is no varying degree of treasures in heaven. So to teach that is to teach something that is not in the Bible. Then there are others, Bible conservative, Bible preachers, that would say, actually, I think this passage, as well as the parable of the talents, as well as the parable of the minas, of which we covered just a few weeks ago, I think indicates that there will be some varying degrees of heavenly treasures. As the judgment of fire is applied during this test, there are some that will be burnt up, but there are some that will remain, and and according to this, they will receive a reward. I believe that the ultimate treasure will be God and the ultimate relationship that we get to be with Him. But I think there's evidence here in the Scriptures that would say it's okay for us to be motivated for heavenly treasures on the other side. Now, what might some of those rewards be? That's what it says there in verse 14. Well, the Bible does speak in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that we will judge angels. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that we will reign with Christ. And so some of that, and I think it's connected to the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, that some of this treasure will be actually responsibility that we have there in heaven of ruling and, and reigning with Christ. As I think about winding this message down, I was reflecting on what some philosophers and some writers have talked about, about man's and women's desires. When Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in the garden. I think you would agree with me that before sin, all their desires were, well, not sinful. But when sin entered their lives and sin entered the world, then their desires were corrupted. We see in in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, that, that speaks about how there are these ways of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and these are the key temptations that face every fallen man and woman. But could it not be that heaven redeems those desires? And that while we in this fallen world might have a desire for possessions, But our temptations is to make those possessions in a a position that they were never intended to be, a place that we might even worship them. It could be that we desire pleasure, but instead of seeking our pleasure in our relationship with Christ, we seek it in impure ways. Could it be that we we seek uh, lordship and rule in life, but because of our pride, We hate to be told what to do, but in heaven, we could actually have these desires fulfilled in that we get to rule as God appoints us to rule. I think it can be persuasively argued that when we get to heaven, that these desires that here on earth are often crooked and warped 
will be redeemed and we return back to what we were already originally created for, to seek pleasure, pleasure in Christ. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures and possessions to a place of going to heaven and saying, this is amazing. Look at this place that we get to live. I'm not worshiping this stuff, but it causes me to worship God even more. And then appreciating the role that God has given to us, like Adam and Eve that were to rule or to manage creation. Now that's been redeemed and we are to manage and rule whatever God has given to us. William Wilberforce said it this way, Christianity proposes not to extinguish our natural desires. It promises to bring the desires under just control and direct them to true object. So here's the conclusion for us today. Prepare now for the test. What are you building your life on? What materials are you using in your life? What is it you do? Why do you do it? How are you doing it? And how much of the materials will last the test? Several years ago, my boys and I had an annual fishing trip with my stepdad on the northwest part of the state. And we had this family cabin that was in my stepdad's family for many years, since the early 70s. It was a wonderful place. It was a place where there's several different memories. I remember going there with my cousins. We would play games out in the yard. Uh, We would catch fish in the neighboring lakes. We had many fish fries there. It was there where my grandpa taught me how to play cribbage. There were times where I was laughing so much because I was with my cousins that my side would ache. And I could not wait to take my boys back to that same place. Now, every year, the family would close that cabin down in the winter, and then in the spring, they would turn the water and turn the heat back on. And as my boys and I were driving to where that cabin was to meet my stepdad, he'd called and says, well, listen, um, we broke a pipe. I have to go back into Ladysmith to the hardware store, and I'm going to fix that pipe. Uh, But you can make your way out to the cabin, and I'll meet you there soon. I said, I can't wait. We're looking forward. I can almost taste the crappies. And about 15 minutes later, my stepdad called again and he says, you're not going to believe this. But a policeman has just called and the cabin is no more. I said, what are you talking about? He said, when I turned on the electricity, the heat, there was a short. And that cabin made of paneling wood had just burned up in a matter of minutes. I said, I got to see this. And so I took my boys out to that cabin, a place filled with all these nostalgic memories. And you know what was left? A chimney and a bunch of billowing smoke. And as I'm thinking about this passage today, I can't think about what's going to be left of my life. When I face Jesus on Judgment Day, And the fires of his judgment make its way through. 
I'm thinking about that for you as well. It matters what we do. It matters why we do it. And it matters how we do it. So my, out of love for you, I just want to help say that's the answers to the test. Take some time now. Be preparing for that. You know, in the back of your outline, there's a whole bunch of questions that normally small groups do. And if you're not involved in a home group, this could be a good one for you to do with your family, with your spouse, with your friend. Even if you're by yourself today, not just to leave today, but just to reflect, what is it that I'll do with the test that awaits? It's not something you have to dread. If you're preparing for it now, it could be something you look forward to. C.T. Studd said this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, that's true. Jesus is our foundation. We want to build our lives on him. And as it stands, we're sending materials forward. And may there be less and less wood, hay, and straw, and more and more gold, silver, and precious stones. May we take inventory of the test that awaits each of us. And may we prepare for that. May, we, may, we, may our motives be pure. May we be thinking about this time. And by the grace of God, by the Spirit's leading, be ready for it. And I'm praying for the ones that are young, the ones that are old. May they not look back, be paralyzed by guilt to say, it's too late, I can't do anything, I've wasted. No, it isn't too late. Help them today to repent and to live according to the way you would want them to do in preparation. Lord, may we be ready for that test. Direct us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.